Good evening, brothers. Hope you're doing well. I miss you, and I hope that uh, everything is going well as we all prepare for this holiday week ahead of us. I invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 47. As you know, these last couple of weeks, we've seen the amazing providential work of God of reuniting his covenant family, a covenant family who has been fractured because of the sins of favoritism, uh, distrust, mutual loathing. I mean, talk about one heck of a Thanksgiving family dinner. Right? They're giving the Griswolds a run for their money. But God, in his mercy and his grace, he's reuniting this family. And we saw this happen, or at least beginning to happen, uh, last week in chapter 46. Now, of course, God's main goal is not merely uh, just to reunite this family. But his main goal is to make this family a great nation through whom he's going to bless other nations. Now, he's been primarily doing that through our man, Joseph. But always remember, as we've seen in this greater Joseph narrative, Joseph is not the main character, the main actor, but rather God is. And we're going to see that in a powerful way in chapter 47. In fact, in chapter 47, Joseph is not even the main human character. His old man, Jacob, is. And we're going to take note of how Jacob has been doing in these years since we've seen him last. So Genesis chapter 47, starting with verse 1, <clears throat> hear the word of God. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They're now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? Uh, remember, back in chapter 46, Joseph prepared his brothers, telling them that, listen, Pharaoh's going to ask you what you do, so be honest. Pharaoh asked, what is your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks for the famine is very severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the lives of my fathers and the days of their sojournings. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them the possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all of his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they had bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house 
And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all of their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of the livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we with our hand will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was so severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that the Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here's your seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. And the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, that is Jacob, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal greatly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And Jacob said, Swear to me. And Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself, or bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we are grateful um, for this day that you have brought us together as your brothers, though we're apart, but you've given us this opportunity to study your word together. I pray that you would speak to us and do a mighty work in our hearts. Speak to us, O oh Lord, for your servants listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers. Uh, here we have a sure-fire, godly saint as a politician. <laughs> Who would have thunk? He was the rarest of breeds back then, and he is certainly a rare breed today. There are few and far between. He is a sure-fire, godly saint who served as a politician, and not just any old politician, a major geopolitical leader. I mean, he knew what he was doing. He knew how to compromise. He knew how to make deals. He knew what to say and when to say it. He knew how to serve the people that employed them. 
But all the while, he did these things while maintaining his fidelity to the Lord, serving in the fear of the Lord with his primary goal to be a blessing for others. He was a righteous politician. He was a godly leader. And we see his wisdom on display through this entire chapter. But remember, Joseph is not the primary actor. God is. And we see that even more on display in chapter 47 through at least three acts of kind providence. Now, I want us to take note of these three acts of God's providence. Um, again, we're going to kind of jump around a little bit. We'll talk about the faithfulness of Jacob in just a moment. But the first act of God's kind providence that we see takes place in verses 1 through 6 in Pharaoh's acceptance of God's people. Uh, Joseph knew that he was going to have to kind of clear the runway a little bit in order for, for God's people to integrate into Egypt. So starting in verses 1 and 2, Joseph makes a very important introduction. He kind of establishes a meet and greet a little bit between his family and Pharaoh. <laughs> and in this meet and greet, we see wisdom, Joseph's wisdom all over the place. Because think about this. We know from chapter 46, he knew that uh, Pharaoh didn't really like shepherds all that much. Um, he was kind of a bigot towards them. I mean, they were nomadic people. Um, they were dirty. They were smelly. Not Pharaoh. He was prim and proper. Uh, also, you know, Pharaoh didn't really trust shepherds that much. In his mind, they were untrustworthy. Joseph also knew that he wanted to provide for his family. And the land of Goshen was the perfect place for them. It was a great shepherding uh, plot of land uh, for his family to do what they needed to do. They were also already in Goshen. <laughs> and furthermore, this is kind of the perfect setup because Goshen was on the outskirts of town. It was kind of like this out of sight, out of mind situation. If Pharaoh didn't want to have to deal with shepherds, he, he didn't have to. And so with all of that in mind, then Joseph goes to work. First off, he, he tells Pharaoh the truth. He says, Pharaoh, my family, whom I love, um, they're in trouble and uh, I would like to provide for them. In fact, they're already in the land of Goshen. All right, so Joseph was honest from the get-go. Then he takes five brothers of, of the lot. Not all of his brothers, just five. Scholars seem to think that he picked the most well-spoken, the most presentable. And he told those brothers what to do in the chapter prior to this one. He said, guys, listen. I know you're going to be intimidated before Pharaoh, and you should. He's a very powerful and dangerous man, and he doesn't like shepherds, but I'm going to clear the way for it. All you got to do is to be honest, tell the truth, and everything's going to be okay. Now, remarkably, as we see in verses 5 and 6, it actually works. Not only did Pharaoh give them the land that they desired, but because he was so impressed with, of course, Joseph, but also impressed with the honesty of Joseph's brothers, he employed them. He employed them in the middle of a world pandemic, of a world famine where undoubtedly people were losing their jobs. But, but Pharaoh employed them. He made them the chief shepherds of the royal herds. Folks, this is absolutely amazing. <laughs> There's at least two things I think we can we can pull out of this. First off, uh, this reminds us as Christians how we ought to live and act in this world as strangers in a strange land, particularly with those 
in power. We are to live with integrity, right? We are not to live according to the world's standards. We're not to to put up a false front. We're not to use the world's methods, the world's tools, and, and operating with other people. But we are to stand on truth and to walk in integrity. It reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Let me read it for you real quick. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, us, to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Secondly, keep your behavior excellent against the Gentiles. Walk integrity amongst those who are against you, Gentiles, so that um, in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may be because of your good deeds as they observe them, Glorify God in the day of your visitation, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of human men. Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. What an amazing contrast we see in that passage with Peter. An amazing contrast we see in the in the life of Joseph's family with so many Christians today. Christians who are living according to worldly standards, using the world's tactics, using the world's methods and motivations to either gain or maintain power. But we were reminded from Scripture and from this family that as Christians, we are not to live according to the world's standards. We are to be a people of integrity. We're to be a people of truth, and we're to live by it. And we also see that God blesses that level of faithfulness. But the main thing that we take away from this first point is, well, God's kindness. Now, it's true that 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 Joseph had so much wisdom on display here. But listen, no matter how wise Joseph was, this should have never have happened. Pharaoh hated these people. They were so far apart in both stature and and in class. And furthermore, he was a bigot towards shepherds. This should never have happened. The only reason that it happened was because God turned Pharaoh's heart to bless his own people. Friends, God is a good God. And we can trust that he is going before us. And that no matter what the situation is, God is going to bend it and use it to the further his kingdom and to bless his people. So that's the first act of God's kindness we see in Pharaoh's acceptance of God's people. Now, secondly, and very quickly, we also see God's kindness in Joseph's provision in verses 11 and 12. In verses 11 and 12, we see, Then Joseph settled his father and brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, the best of the land. But then in verse 12, Joseph provided his father and his brothers with food. All that they needed, Joseph provided. Now, we see God's providential kindness here. But we really see it in that phrase, and his brothers. Folks, remember, listen, Joseph loved his dad, Jacob. They had their issues, but Jacob was Joseph's dad. Of course, he was going to love him and bless him. But his brothers, we remember the relationship that Joseph had with his brothers. Listen, when he first saw his brothers in the chapter prior, you know, of course, he was overcome with emotion. He hadn't seen him in forever. He was very excited. But time has passed since then. He had time to remember the evil things that his family, his brothers, did to him. 
and and in any normal human being, right? And and just their fleshy mind, they would have gotten a pound of flesh. I mean, just think about it when we were kids and we might have had a go with our brothers, right? And maybe our brother did something just really low to us, right? And we were we were just gonna get our pound of flesh. But then mom and dad show up and they say, hey guys, your brothers love each other, act like it. Uh, you know this, you know better than that, Barton. You, you treat your brother with kindness. You know, we're family. Okay, yes, mom, yes, dad. Then mom and dad go to the store and as soon as they close the store, go to the store and close the door, you know, you just look at your brother say, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> you charge after him. That didn't happen here. Uh, listen, the, f- the furthest thing happened. Joseph blessed his brothers who did great evil upon him. God providentially put Joseph in a place of power in order to bless others. And God providentially softened and turned Joseph's heart to bless his brothers who did not deserve it. Which just reminds us, doesn't it, that we don't ever deserve the blessings in which God gives us. But in God's kindness, he blesses his own people. So we see it in Joseph's provision. But thirdly, we see God's kind providence in prosperity, not only with the people of Israel, but also in Egypt. We see this in the longest section of this passage in verses 13 through 26. This also happens to be the most controversial section of this passage, right? Because on the surface of it, it was because of Joseph's leadership and the policies in which he put in place that the people of Egypt were subjugated, right? That they were subjugated. Now, you know, some folks have uh, reason to believe that that was a little uh, less than godly on Joseph's part. And it very well might have been. But before we really make that conclusion, let's just let's just think through a couple of things. First off, we cannot read this passage with present day eyeballs. OK, we you know, we can't even read it really um, uh, in the perspective of post exodus. Right. Because it's true that after God would rescue the people of Israel and establish them as a nation and give them laws and, and, and customs, there would be such a thing as the um, um, the year of Jubilee, which was this marvelous um, practice of debt forgiveness, of, of restoring people who were down and out. But listen, Egypt wasn't there. Egypt did not have that, that level of enlightenment, nor did they have the system in place to, to bear that type of debt, for, uh, debt forgiveness. And even though Joseph was in a great position of power, I doubt very seriously he could have instilled that in the land of Egypt. Even more so, he didn't even think of it yet because remember, God God instituted that himself later um, um, post-Exodus, right? So this was like an otherworldly ethic. Furthermore, as subjugated people, the Egyptians were still paying about 20% tax, which is a lot, but not in comparison to, to other nations around. The Mesopotamia had a 40% tax. So we can't really read it with modern eyeballs and whether if he did something shady, I'm not sure. But regardless, God used whatever he did and his policies in order to bring prosperity to the land. First off, he brought it to Egypt. Listen, at this point, Pharaoh was Rockefeller. Everything belonged to Pharaoh. Now, informally, everything already did belong to Pharaoh, but now it was a formal deal. Everything was Pharaoh's. I mean, he was blessed 
which is actually kind of a living out of, of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Those who bless my people, I will bless. Pharaoh was being blessed, but not just Pharaoh, also the people of the land. Yes, they were subjugated. But while everybody else was starving, the Egyptians did not go one day without food. This is remarkable. In verse 25, even though they were subjugated, they looked to um, Joseph as a national hero. They loved Joseph. They weren't complaining. They said, Joseph has saved our lives. They loved the man. Israel, or rather Egypt, was prospering in a very adverse situation. But secondly, we see even greater prosperity with God's own people. God made it so that not only was Israel being fed during a famine, which is no small thing, but according to verses 20 and 20 through 27, Israel actually acquired property. Everybody else was losing their belongings, um, but Israel gained property. They weren't subjugated at this point. And furthermore, they were being fruitful and they were multiplying Moses uses that language on purpose. That's the language of the Garden of Eden. That's the language of the promises made to Abraham. God was prospering his people. Now, don't you find it interesting that while Jacob and his, and his kindred were still in Canaan, had plenty to eat, they were not in a hostile land, they were, they were doing well. But it wasn't until they were in this adverse situation, right, that God just exponentially grew his family. It just reminds us that adversity, we don't wish it upon ourselves or others. We don't want to suffer, but we can trust that God will do a marvelous work, especially during times of adversity and suffering. We can trust him with it. We can trust that God is working out all things in order to bless his people. I love this quote by James Montgomery Boyce. He says, as God's children, we become subjects of his persistent prosperity. Either as he brings calamity or well-being, he will affect the prosperity of our souls. All the things that we enjoy or all the things that we endure or suffer, all our successes or maybe all our disappointments, all our gains or losses are meant for our good and our ultimate prosperity. This is a declaration that Joseph himself would make in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is a declaration that we see made in Jeremiah, who was writing to exiles in chapter 29, verse 11, where God says, I know my plans for you, plans for wholeness, not evil, to give you a future and hope. Paul summarizes the same thing in Romans 8, 28, that God will use all things, good things and bad things for the good of those who love him and for his own glory. In all of scripture, we see that God's plans of shalom, true peace and prosperity for his people. In those plans, there is not an ounce of evil in the conception, the implementation or the consumption of them or consummation of them. We can trust God in every single one of our circumstances that in his kindness and grace, he's working out all things for the good of his people and for his own glory. So the first main theme that we see in this chapter is the kindness of God's providence. He is the one behind the scenes working out all things together for the good of his people. Now, the second main theme that we see in Genesis chapter 47 is the faithfulness of Jacob, which in my mind is, is so good to see because up until this point, we've seen a lot of faithlessness from Jacob, 
But now we see some great acts of faithfulness in his life, and there's a lot of things that we can learn from it. Now, the first act of, of Jacob's faithfulness we see is in verses 7 through 10 when he is before Pharaoh. Joseph's brothers have passed the test up to this point. Now it's time for dear old dad to go meet Pharaoh. Now, at this point, Joseph was an old man. He was a shepherd. Again, remember, Pharaohs didn't like shepherds, and uh, he was just a worn-out guy. And he goes before the, the, the powerful presence of Pharaoh. Now, what's really interesting, though, is it is not Pharaoh who held court that day. It was the patriarch. And we're to understand that because even before they had a meaningful exchange, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Not once, but twice. A double blessing. Now, that's important because it wasn't Southern culture. This was not a nicety. In Hebrew, words of blessing were a deed done, especially when it was a spiritual blessing. He blessed Pharaoh. Now, folks, this is, this is extraordinary. Just, just think about this. Notice the contrast between these two men. Again, Jacob was an old man. He was, he was withered. Um, he, had, he had seen some miles by this point. He had been through the ringer. It couldn't have been more different than Pharaoh. Pharaoh had, was, was probably young and vibrant. He was probably fit. Um, he had servants upon servants. He drank from cups of alabaster. He had thrones made in gold. Okay. From, from, from worldly standards, Jacob was the lesser of these two. And that's important because we remember, right, from, from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, right, that the greater always blesses the lesser. We saw that with Abraham and Melchizedek. The greater always blesses the lesser. The lesser, And that principle remains true in this passage. Because humanly speaking, yeah, sure, Pharaoh was greater. But it was Jacob who had God's providential hand behind him. And what's really interesting, it seems that not only Jacob, but also Pharaoh understood that. Because Pharaoh received Jacob's blessing. Now, friends, I find this really interesting because this outlook that Jacob had is something that all Christians should have. Oftentimes, we are mesmerized by the power and the riches of this world. Sometimes when we're in the presence of those that the world considers important, we clam up, we become immobilized. But listen, we have to understand we need to learn it as Jacob learned. That as the church, we have more to offer the world than the world has to offer us. There is no treasure like the treasure that you and I as Christians possess. We, we, we possess the treasure of the gospel, brothers. We possess the treasure of the true knowledge of God. And as those who believe the gospel and deal in the word and handle the word, you and I as Christians are the most important people in the world with the greatest purpose to share our treasure, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of the true knowledge of God with people like Pharaoh. Great faithfulness. We also see this is important too, because this is great courage on Jacob's part, right? Listen, what do we know of Jacob up until this point? He's been very cowardly. But not here. In old age, he has finally moved into his birthright. 
to be a blessing to others. He blessed Pharaoh. Finally, he's living out God's call on his life. And isn't this so encouraging, brothers, that even in old age, God is still working in your and my hearts. God, God never gives up on his people. So we see remarkable faithfulness in Jacob's life, even before Pharaoh. But, but secondly, in verses 27 through 31, we see Jacob was faithful even before death. Jacob was on up there in years, and about the time that he was getting ready to die, he does something very strange in verse 29. He told Joseph to put his hand underneath his thigh and made his son promise him that he would not bury Jacob in the land of Egypt. What in the world is going on? What's the thigh thing about? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, but the thigh thing, it was a modest way of reminding one of the covenant of circumcision, right? So what Jacob was saying, son, I know you have a very important position in Egypt, and I know there's so much prosperity and blessing in this land, but son, this ain't it. God has promised you and he's promised me something greater He's promised us even greater blessing than what you see here. He's promised us a greater land. This isn't it, son. And so that's what he was doing. He was reminding Joseph of truth. What about the whole deal about, please don't bury me in Egypt? What's that about? Well, he wasn't afraid that he was going to be somehow eternally separated from the Lord had he been buried in Egypt. He wasn't worried about that. But what he was concerned with was that his life, rather his death, the marker of his death, the tombstone, would be forever a testimony to his children, to his grandchildren, and to his great-grandchildren that hope is not found in Egypt. He wanted his life to be a testimony, an Ebenezer that his kids would always be looking to the promises of God, not the promises of this world. Friends, isn't that amazing? What a testimony that in old age, he was not concerned about where he was going. He knew where he was going, eternally speaking. And nor was he concerned with, with his own comfort. The concern of his heart were that his kids would always be followers of Yahweh and that they would always set their hopes on him. Friends, that's amazing. Now, that's a testimony for all of us. <laughs> this man, Jacob, who was once so faithless and so cowardly, God had done a marvelous work in his heart to receive great acts of faithfulness. Brothers, what kept Joseph from falling into sin and temptation given the great position of power he had? He was always looking to the one true king. What kept Jacob living faithfully in old age, even faithful before death? His hope was not in this world. His hope was in the world to come. Brothers, <laughs> we are pilgrims, just like Joseph, just like Jacob, wandering in a strange land. This life will be filled with difficulty and temptations. But if we are to live faithfully, if we're to approach old death, old age and death faithfully, what must we do? We must keep our eyes on Christ. He is the one true king. 
the one who deals kindly with us and the one who has promised us life abundant and the world to come. Brothers, may God enable each of us to live as faithful pilgrims, setting our hopes not in this world, but in the world to come. And may we always rest in the promises of Christ. Amen.